1: As in, I don't just do this as a hobby, like, you know, I've stocked up on a lot of truth over the years, and I'm just here, you know, dispensing it, handing it out free for anybody who wants it. Come on, it's like $300 bills. Come on, gather around, everybody. Here's some truth for you, some truth for you. I do this more because there is such a concerted effort right now on any number of uh, fronts of officialdom to try to keep us from ascertaining the truth. I'll let you fill in the blanks as, why would anybody want to do that? Why would people in positions of power prefer that you and I don't exactly see the big picture all that clearly? I'll bet you could come up with some good reasons. I know that I can, but ultimately, here's the deal. I will give you truth as I best understand it, and I spend my days combing the Internet and looking for great, credible resources that can give me a better understanding of what's happening in the world But what you do with that information, that is entirely up to you. In other words, I don't expect you to just accept it from me as if it were a $100 bill. Here you go, kid. Buy yourself a, a candy store or whatever. No. I want you to take it. I want you to examine it for yourself. Test it against what you know to be true, against your moral compass, if you will. And then, and only if it makes sense, you know, you know, you can assimilate it into your life, or feel free to reject it. But the bottom line is, I don't expect you to agree with me. So if you're already shaking your head, going, "I don't know," this guy sounds pretty out of there. That's fine. You know, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I understand something that I I wish I had understood many years earlier, and that is, this message isn't for everyone. Not because everyone else is stupid and they, they wouldn't get it, you know. It's because not everybody is ready. ...to go after the truth. In fact, you know, if I can if I can just... I'm going to go off on a little tangent here for just a moment. In every controversy, you're going to find that people care a lot less for what the truth is... ...than they do for which side is safer and which one's more respectable to take. So if you are determined to be someone who's living a life based in truth... If ...you're determined you're going to stand for truth, no matter how unpopular... You know, you'll grow thicker skin, but you never really get used to people vilifying you or, you know, questioning you or ratioing you on Twitter or whatever it may be. In other words, there's a price to be paid. Not everybody is at a point where they are willing to pay that price. And one of the reasons many people are reluctant to take any kind of a stand in the first place is because they are unsure what their foundational principles are. So I'm encouraging you not to, you adopt my foundational principles, you're going to be just great. I want you to know what yours are. Be willing to examine your own heart, determine where you stand, and then stand strong, no matter what the crowd is doing, no matter what the herd is doing, no matter which direction they happen to be stampeding. All right, sorry. That was a little tangent, but I felt better afterwards. So <clears throat> the show is brought to you by great sponsors like ModestoCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Garage Door Pro services.com, as well as HSLammo.com. I've got some great stuff to share, but I'm gonna. I want to just give you a little update. I fell a few weeks ago, separated my shoulder. Oh, what fun that was! And in that time. I've been learning that, uh, yeah, in your mid-50s, you don't bounce back like you did when you were 19. And, uh, boy, it's it's been really apparent. So my shoulder has still been kind of giving me a little bit of grief, you know, just weakness, lack of motion and whatnot. So I finally went and I got an MRI yesterday. This is the first time I've ever had an MRI. And I've heard people say, well, you know, if you're, if you're claustrophobic, it, it might be a little bit intense for you. But I thought, okay, but I'm forewarned. All right, I'll be okay. I'm a strong manly man I will I will uh, do just fine. And they got me set up on the on the machine and everything it was you know no problem getting all scrunched in and ready to be slid into the machine which it's it's just like it's a big tube that they they slide you into. But as as a, a friend from grade school explained with with his uh, MRI experience the second my face passed under the plane of uh, of the the edge of the machine once I started going in there I could not believe the sense of panic that came over me. It was I man I knew I was a little claustrophobic but that was that was very eye opening. I'm not sure I like what I learned about myself. That it really it was really intense. So anyway I ended up having to just, you know scrunch my eyes shut as tight as I could and breathe just breathe okay just keep breathing and don't look do not open your eyes to see the, the ceiling of that, uh, that MRI machine an inch away from my nose or a couple inches away. It was just, it was very unusual. And I, I find out as I hear from other people who've also been, been through that process, that's a pretty common thing. Kind of wish I had asked for a Xanax or something beforehand because, man, that, uh, I, I haven't felt that kind of panic in a long, long time. I, I dare say if, if the the NSA or the CIA or somebody was trying to interrogate me, uh, they don't need to waterboard me, man. All they got to do is just strap me down and start to put me into an MRI machine. What, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? Names? Dates? <laughs> I confess. Just stop the torture. Anyhow, let's uh, let's jump in here. And I, I have this marvelous article that I'm linking to in today's show notes. I hope you will take the time to read it because it answers a, a question. It it finds a missing piece of the puzzle. Why were the lockdowns so much like martial law? Why did they feel like martial law when they began? And the Brownstone Institute has been doing research on this. Uh, Debbie Lerman wrote this article titled, Government's National Security Arm Took Charge During the COVID Response. Now, she has written previous articles where she discussed the probability that Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator, was not a representative of the public health agencies, but rather was appointed by the National Security Council. Now she has proof that this was indeed the case. In fact, uh, she also, uh, Debbie Lerman also uncovered documents showing as of March 13th, 2020, the National Security Council, or NSC, was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID policy. And starting on March 18th of 2020, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, under the direction of the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, was officially in charge of the U.S. government's COVID response. Why does that matter? Okay, because the National Security Agency is supposed to be dealing with things like terrorism or war. It's not there for public health emergencies. it's It's not intended to to <clears throat> to deal with, uh, you know, public health crises. But suddenly you start to wonder, well who was taking orders from whom? They made it a matter of national security in order to test and see how far can we lock this thing down. And once the national security authorities were in charge, the entire biodefense, industrial complex consisting of national security intelligence operatives propaganda psyop or psychological operations departments pharmaceutical companies affiliated government officials and NGOs all stepped up and assumed leadership roles pretty crazy stuff now when you when you consider too you know that uh, that this was very likely a Virus that was uh, souped up, if you will, with gain-of-function research, paid for by the U.S. government. I don't know. This takes on a very sinister tone. And the conclusion that, uh, that she comes to here is our response to the COVID pandemic was led by groups and agencies that are in the business of responding to wars and terrorist threats. Not public health crises, not disease outbreaks. And this wasn't just in the U.S., In fact, uh, Deborah Lerner says, uh, look, I believe that uh, the national security authorities took control of the COVID pandemic response, not just in the U.S., but in allied countries like the U.K., Australia, Germany, Israel, and others, because they knew SARS-CoV-2 was an engineered virus that was leaked from a lab researching potential bioweapons. I hope you'll read the article. It's very detailed. Okay this is this is not just well here's some wild speculation uh, drawing a few lines between this and that it's it's very well researched but there's still hypotheses that she's that she's trying to explore here I don't know Debbie Lerman I I appreciate her uh, she's a 2023 uh, Brownstone fellow but the Brownstone Institute is really let out on on getting to the root of what happened here how can we prevent this from happening again the national security state. If you know, you've if you've listened to this program, you know that was our deal with the devil that we made following World War II. Jacob Hornberger actually has written extensively about this, and the 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 nutshell version of it is this: we were so concerned as a nation about uh, well, the Soviets, you know, the communists are taking over everywhere in the world that we actually handed off a great deal of authority and autonomy to these national security agencies and told them, you do whatever you need to do, even if you have to be as as evil as the Soviets. Do what you have to do to keep us safe, but just, you know, don't tell us about it. We don't want to know. And they took it, and they ran with it. And now that focus has been turned on us. This isn't going to end well.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to
1: give a quick shout out here to GarageDoorProServices.com. Yes, indeed. For my listeners in the southwest corner of Utah, including St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. If you have a garage door, whether a commercial one or residential one, if you need one installed, if you need one repaired, talk to GarageDoorProServices.com. Go to their website. Check out the reviews that other customers have left. They take care of their customers. They offer faster lead times, better customer service than you're going to find elsewhere. And they come with my recommendation, which I hope counts for something, because I I really do appreciate Seth and everything that he is doing to serve that corner of southwestern Utah. GaragedoorProservices.com Well, while the culture warriors around us are trying to replace the word equality with the word equity... We've got a little bit of a problem on our hands because those are not words that mean the same thing. They're not interchangeable. In fact, I have a great essay here from uh, the wonderful Lawrence W. Reed. Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. When equality becomes evil. Now understand, he's not saying that equality before the law is a bad thing. That's indisputably a good thing. But when you use force to make people equal, uh, that's not so good. He says, Memorize the following line. Teach it to your children. Shout it from the rooftops every chance you get. It's one of the most important truths you'll ever learn or teach. You ready? Free people are not equal, and equal people are not free. Now, Larry Reed says, Your first reaction might be, Well, I thought equality was supposed to be a wonderful thing, something we should all strive for, but this sounds like a rejection of it. Well, as the old saying goes, the devil is in the details. Whether equality is good or bad, depends on the kind that you're talking about. Context makes all the difference in the world. Equality before the law, such as being judged innocent or guilty, based on whether you committed the crime, not on what color, sex, or creed you represent, that's an indisputably good thing. We should all want the law to be applied fairly and equally to all citizens. The blindfolded goddess of justice should never peek. That kind of equality is a virtue and an ideal. It's a pillar of Western civilization for which untold numbers of men and women have given their lives. The meaning of free people are not equal and equal people are not free, however, is economic in nature. It refers to material income or wealth. Put another way, it might read free people will earn different incomes. To ensure their incomes are equal, you must attack their freedom by using force. In fact, he says, this is, from my, uh, this is the first of my seven principles of sound policy. By the way, there's a great link to this speech that you can watch for yourself in, in the article. He says, with elections just days away, I hope you will not vote for someone simply because that candidate is promising to steal on your behalf. To bow to such unseemly demagoguery makes the candidate a crook and therefore not to be trusted, and it would make you a craven accomplice whose freedom and independence can be bought with a handout. So consider two violinists. One plays in an underground subway for whatever coins that passers-by toss in his violin case. The other performs in concert halls before audiences of thousands. It doesn't matter that they may play the same tunes and be equally pleasing to the ear. The income of the first one will never come close to the income of the second unless and until he cleans up his act and finds himself a good marketer. This is economic inequality. It arises through no compulsion and reflects very different magnitudes of service to happy customers. It's both natural and beneficial. Even in unfree societies like Cuba or North Korea, we see inequality in incomes. The masses there live in quiet desperation, while the political elites live in luxury. In the name of equality, such places not only fall far short of it, but they also produce tyranny and mass poverty in the effort. Economist Milton Friedman stated this truth in a famous and memorable way. The society that puts equality before freedom will end up with neither. The society that puts freedom before equality will end up with a great measure of both. Now, Larry Reed says, one of my favorite movies is Enemy at the Gates, which appeared in 2001. Disillusioned with the communist system, a Soviet propagandist named Danilov, played by Joseph Fiennes, heaves himself into the line of fire, but not before he mutters, We tried so hard to create a society where everyone was equal, where there was nothing to envy or appropriate. But there is no new man. There will always be envy. There will always be rich and poor. And then he adds, rich in gifts, poor in gifts. Rich in love, poor in love. Now that's both common sense and profound. Economic equality in a free society is neither obtainable nor desirable. Free people are different people. And so it should come as no surprise that they earn different incomes. Our talents and abilities are not identical. Some work harder than others, and even if we were all magically made equal in wealth tonight, we would be unequal again in the morning because some of us would spend it and some of us would save it. To impose economic equality or anything even remotely close to it, governments must issue these orders and back them up with firing squads and prisons. Don't work harder or smarter than others. Don't come up with any new ideas or inventions. Don't take any risks. Don't try to be more successful than anybody else. In other words, don't be human. Now consider the wisdom of this remark in a 1945 essay by Austrian economist F.A. Hayek. There is all the difference in the world between treating, treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. While the first is the condition of a free society, the second means, as de Tocqueville describes, Describes it rather a new form of servitude. End quote. So, the fact that free people are not equal in economic terms is a cause for rejoicing. Economic inequality, when it stems from the freedom of creative individuals and not from government power and political advantages, testifies to the fact that people are being themselves, each putting his uniqueness to work in ways that are fulfilling to himself and of value to others. People obsessed with economic equality do strange things. They become envious of others. They divide society into two piles. There's villains and there's victims. And they spend far more time dragging someone else down than they do pulling themselves up. They're not fun to be around. And if they make it to public office, they can ruin a nation. The envy that fuels their passions is at the root of many modern evils. Now, Larry Reed says the Nordic economist Anders Chadenius warned us in the 18th century where the cult of redistribution leads. The more opportunities there are in a society for some persons to live upon the toil of others, and the less those others may enjoy the fruits of their work themselves, the more is diligence killed, the former become insolent, the latter despairing, and both negligent. End quote. Now, no economist worthy of the title believes that either freedom or prosperity can be built upon the dirty business of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Philosopher Eric Hoffer, in his book, The True Believer, offered an interesting explanation for the, much of the quest to make us all equal. He said, quote, those who see their lives as spoiled and wasted crave equality and fraternity more than they do freedom. If they clamor for freedom, it is but freedom to establish equality and uniformity. The passion for equality is partly a passion for anonymity, to be one thread of the many which make up a tunic, one thread not distinguishable from the others. No one can then point us out, measure us against others, and expose our inferiority. End quote. Wow, that's a that's a profound quote. So Larry Reed says for those who want to refresh their understanding of equality, the sort to strive for as well as the kind to avoid, he says I've assembled some excellent readings below. Take a look at them, share them with others. But he reminds us, this economic equality thing is parent to endless harm. When it's just an idea, it's nonsense. But when it finds its way into public policy, it's poison. And he says, don't drink it. He's got a great list of articles here, including uh, Equal But Not The Same by Edmund A. Optis. Is Wealth A Sin by Doug Stewart? Snowstorms or Snowflakes by Larry Reed? Would You Rather Have Income Equality or Income Mobility by Ann Bradley? And finally, the equality of of opportunity, not outcome, is what made America awesome by Hannah Frankman and Dan Sanchez. Man, there's so much good material at the Foundation for Economic Education. If you go to fee.org, you could spend many hours, maybe days, weeks, or months perusing all the information that they have there. Wonderful writers, very principle-based information. I strongly recommend it. You're going to be a serious wrong thinker. This is one of your primary resources. All right. Having said that, we've got to take a quick break. So let's do that. We'll come back in just a few moments. Still got some other fun stuff to share with you. Just the other side of these commercial messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks again for taking a chance and uh, choosing to listen. I know there are a lot of voices out there that uh, all have messages that I think are are worthwhile. This is a message for for people who are looking for a particular type of truth. And if you are one of them, I welcome you to our, our growing collection of wrong thinkers. Come, come and travel with us. Let's see where this journey leads. You know, I, I shared an essay from Edward Curtin just a couple of—well, I guess it was maybe a week ago—about uh, stuff being owned by our stuff, and it just struck such a nerve with me. I thought he was so on target, and he has really been swinging for the fences lately. And he connects on his latest essay on social self—I'm sorry, self, self-destructive social habits, loneliness, and propaganda. Now, Edward Curtin starts with a quote from T.S. Eliot from The Hollow Men. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. Leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas. And he says, when many people share thoughts, speech, or conduct that's frequently repeated and becomes automatic, it's fair to call it social habit. Such habits tend to become invisible and unspeakable. They become part of our taken-for-granted world. So when he wrote that essay about hoarding, the last temptation of things... Edward Curtin says, many people got angry with me. In fact, a friend wrote me to say, I congratulate and curse you for writing this. Now, he meant that as a compliment. And Curtin says, I took it as meaning that I touched a raw nerve and it touched off a series of further thoughts about social habits and people's angry reactions when they're challenged. Now, he says, some people who criticized me absurdly, absurdly complained that you're supporting Klaus Schwab and the World Economics Forum's You Will Own Nothing campaign something that he's opposed, actually, from the start. Others said I was attacking people who kept mementos and photographs and that I was advocating living in a shack. Now, that was clearly false. Some got it, of course, and knew that I was using an extreme example to make a point about excessive saving of all sorts of things and how debilitating it is to surround ourselves with far more than we could ever use, need, or even know we have. He said my study was a friend's house that my wife and I had just cleaned out in an exhaustive case of what felt like an exorcism. But now he says, I see there's a clear connection between hoarding or whatever word you want to give it where the saving of things is excessive and propaganda. Both are forms of habitual clutter. One's mental, one is physical, the former imposed from without and accepted passively, and the latter self-created to try to protect from loss. In both cases, the suggestion that your social habits need to be examined is often greeted as a threat to one's existence and elicits anger or dismissal. Sociologists, he says, of which I am one, have various terms for what I'm calling social habits. Now, they don't speak the language of ordinary people, so their lingo rarely enters into common discourse to be heard by most people. Such verbiage just often mystifies, but habit is a plain and clear word, and social habit simply extends the meaning I'm referring to. José Ortega y Gasset, the uh, Spanish philosopher, and Max Weber referred to it as usage before settling on habit. While usage is accurate, it lacks the stickiness of habit, which is the simplest word and one everyone understands as behavior that's become automatic through frequent repetition. For example, in the inconsequential realm of clothing fashions, men are now wearing tight leg-fitting pants, and it seems normal to most, just as loose pants did in the past. It will change, of course, and a new or old social fashion habit will replace it, and most will go with it. Either way, you choose, you lose, or win, depending on whether or not you follow the fashions of dress. Which means little or much, depending on whether you interpret them symbolically as signifying more than their appearances present. So, it is true that all ideas, language usage, and behavior become second nature until they're not. For example, my bad may no longer be good, as far as I know, a phrase that I've avoided along with a ton of fun, you guys, in overseas contingency operations. But he says some social habits persist for a very long time because they're continually reinforced with propaganda that created them in the first place. As Jacques Elul has emphasized, such propaganda is not the touch of a magic wand. It's based on slow, constant impregnation. It creates convictions and compliance that are effective only by continuous repetition. Like a slowly dripping faucet, it drips and drips and drips to reinforce its point. So here are some examples of what that looks like. He says, Take the hatred of Russia promulgated by the U.S. government. It's more than a century old. Few Americans know that the U.S. invaded Russia in 1918 to try to stop the Russian Revolution. Today's war against Russia is nothing new, yet many people buy the daily lies about the war in Ukraine because it's a habit of mind, part of their taken-for-granted world. Take the CIA assassinations of President Kennedy and his brother Robert. For decades, the U.S. media has worked hand-in-glove with the CIA to reinforce the official lies by calling those who've exposed those lies conspiracy theorists, a term that the CIA itself promoted and the media continues to use daily to ridicule dissent. The phrase conspiracy theorist is just a handle handy social usage regularly used now to dismiss critics of any official claim, not just the Kennedys' murders. Take the U.S. government assassination of Martin of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that's been covered up by giving Martin Luther King Jr. his own holiday and reducing his message to Pablum. Now you can have a day of service to forget King's passionate denunciation of the U.S. government as the most violent nation on the earth and the government's murder of him for his powerful anti-war stance and his campaign on economic justice for all. Take the attacks of September 11, 2001, and the subsequent anthrax attacks. They too were wrapped in propaganda from day one that's been reinforced since, resulting in the social habit shared by the majority that Osama bin Laden and 19 Arab hijackers planned and carried out the attacks. Now, this propaganda supported the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the so-called war on terror that has never ended. The destruction of Libya, Afghanistan, the ongoing war against Syria, the aggression toward China, and the U.S. against Russia, to name the most obvious. And it ushered in 21 years and counting of the squelching of liberties, civil liberties, government censorship, and surveillance. All this with no mass resistance from a population lost in the taken-for-granted world of mind control, their minds cluttered with lies. Take the COVID pandemic propaganda that produced the new normal in March 2020 and continues today. Destroying small businesses, crippling the economies, fattening up the elites and the wealthiest classes and corporations, injecting millions with untested mRNA, so-called vaccines. This diabolical big lie has accustomed people to accepting further restrictions on their natural rights under the guise of protecting their health while severely damaging their health. Despite the fact that all the official claims have been proven false, the fear of death and disease promoted for many years has dramatically entered into the social bloodstream and additional censorship of of dissenting voices has been embraced. So, when one questions these social habits, people's reactions can be sharp and shrill To suggest that people collect too many things out of fear of emptiness, as Edward Curtin did in his piece on hoarding, well, that becomes a direct attack on some who have a deep sense of, or some of the deep sense that people have of themselves, as if the stuff was an extension of their identities, without which they would drown. Even more threatening to many is to question their opinions about COVID-19, JFK, RFK, the war against the U.S. war against Russia, rather 9/11, etc and to suggest to them that they have swallowed massive doses of deep state propaganda. This often infuriates them. It is unspeakable, as the Trappist monk Thomas Merton said, as quoted by James W. Douglas in his extraordinary book, JFK and the Unspeakable, quote, One of the awful facts of our age is the evidence that the world is stricken indeed, stricken to the very core of its being by the presence of the unspeakable. It is the void that contradicts everything that is spoken even before the words are said. The void that gets into the language of the public and official declarations at the very moment when they are pronounced and makes them ring dead with the hollowness of the abyss. It is the void out of which Eichmann drew the punctilious exactitude of his obedience. Quote. So the point here is social habits are very hard to break, especially when they're reinforced by official propaganda. In fact, they tend to be addictive. How many people do you see driving around alone in their cars wearing a mask? Okay, there's a good example. Ownership and use of the cell phone is a prime example. Such phones are a key element of the digital revolution that has allowed for increased social control and propaganda. And here's the point. This one's going to sting. Few can give them up. And when your mind is filled with years of propaganda that's become second nature, your ability to think independently is extremely limited. There is no place for the creative emptiness that leads to genuine thought. Dissent becomes conspiracy theory. Hollow heads filled with straw indeed. But he says, Elliot may have been wrong in the way he ended his poem. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Well, Edward Curtin says it may end with a bang while many just whimper. Pretty thought-provoking article. And again, this one pushed me, too. It it got me a little uncomfortable. Like, wait a minute. Now i got to sit down and evaluate how many of these... uh, How many thoughts are really just kind of reflexive habits that I've allowed to creep in over the years? Yeah, I I haven't arrived. I'm still very much a work in progress and trying to figure this all out. But I'd rather be uncomfortable in pursuing the truth than comfortably, comfortably being led to my doom by believing a bunch of lies.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again,
1: just a quick thank you to MonticelloCollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and HSL Ammo. Links to these sponsors can be found in my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't subscribed, please feel free to do so. Go to my website, click on the show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a subscribe button. I send out to, every day that I do the show, I send out a copy of those show notes to my subscribers. It's free of charge. I don't spam you. I don't uh, you know, bombard you with other stuff. I do give you one extra bonus, and that is a little daily feature I do called Hide in Plain Sight it's a totally non-political just common sense stuff that's staring us right in the face but sometimes somebody needs to point it out and that's uh, that's i send the script for that to to my subscribers as well so hopefully i'm not burdening your inbox but i'm not trying to sell you anything so much as inviting you to come along for the ride and let's uh, let's continue to think as clearly and independently as we can so a couple of things i want to touch on here In uh, this segment, one of the biggest civic challenges we face right now is the fact that uh, political officials rarely have the humility to admit when they don't know something. Got a great article here from uh, Michael Munger. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. What ain't so can hurt you. He says, we all say we admire honesty, but whenever we actually have to choose, we pick the person who tells us what we want to hear. That one stung. But it rings true, right? In economic policy especially, that means that we can get hurt when we pick promises over prudence. Now, he says macroeconomists need to imagine what causes what and then choose measures that allow those causal relations to be identified and compared. In fact, he says, I'm reminded of the famous Josh Billings quip, I honestly believe it is better to know nothing than to know what ain't so. That's often attributed to Mark Twain, by the way, but... It's still quite delightful, no matter how you think about it. The sentiment dates back at least as far as Plato's apology, where Socrates claimed he was wise because he believed he knew nothing, while others are ignorant even of their own ignorance. But he says, in my modest, My own modest experience, both in academics and politics, indicates that the value judgment implied in the Billings aphorism is simply incorrect. Knowing things that just ain't so is the heart of the modeling enterprise. All models are false by construction in the sense that the model intentionally abstracts from a prohibitively complex reality to allow the representation of relationships and the simulation of different policy alternatives to determine which is better in a given situation. Michael Munger says that's fine as long as we realize we're using a model instead of believing the model and pretending we live inside the reality that it projects, where we've imagined that one variable causes another. He goes on to talk about how the problem is most acute when it's time to make policy recommendations, and he gives a couple of situations in which uh, those who use models but who know that the predictions of the models are likely misleading and that the world is more complex are at an extreme disadvantage. So like a candidate seeking political office or an economist trying to get tenure in a in a in uh, an academic job, great examples. The bottom line is He says, well educated people, suppose well educated people do well on a certain kind of test. If we use that test to evaluate teachers, the resulting level of educational achievement falls rather than rises, because we're trying to exploit an observed statistical relation for control purposes. College rankings used a number of metrics that appeared related to the quality of the school, but when colleges began focusing on those numbers instead of on the business of education, guess what happened? The quality of instruction and achievement fell off quickly. And I appreciate Michael Munger saying, look, I'm stumped as to what the solution to this problem might look like. We ignore people who rightly point out simple solutions to political and economic problems, make things worse, or point out that simple solutions make things worse, not better. We vote for and reward charlatans who pretend to know the answers and zealots who actually believe their own superficial galimatias. I have not heard that word before. He says, ultimately, it's a collective action problem. It would be better for society if our leaders were humble and honest about how little they actually know. But it's better for candidates for leadership if they pretend to be committed to a whole dog's breakfast of truths that just ain't so. Wow. That's a great article to kind of help each of us sharpen up our own thinking. All right, one final note here. I, You know, the pleas for amnesty and forgiveness that we've been hearing this week from uh, the people who pushed COVID policies or supported COVID policies, they've prompted some amazing responses. Some have been, you know, thundering, you know, don't you dare suggest forgiveness. Some have been pretty thoughtful. This one from the bionic mosquito is is a pretty darn good one. In April 2020, with nothing else to do, my family took an enormous number of hikes. This is from the Emily Oster opinion article, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. And the Bionic Mosquito says, I came across this piece thanks to Karen DeCosta, referred to in her lewrockwell.com blog post entitled, The Satanic Church of COVID Left Begs for Mercy. In fact, he says, I'll allow her to introduce it in case her title isn't sufficient. She says, The sham propaganda continues to twist in the wind, looking for one last chance to be embraced by the gaslit masses. Returning to Oster, so they were taking all these hikes. We all wore cloth masks that, masks rather that I had made myself. Well, that was very scientific. Homemade masks. I wonder what surgeons and epidemiologists thought about that before March of 2020. Now, the bionic mosquito says it's bad enough that parents in this family were deluded. What they did to their children was horrendous. From the article by Emily Oster. Once when another child got too close to my then four-year-old son on a bridge, he yelled at her, social distancing! Bionic Mosquito says, you know, someone's dad should have decked the other child's dad. But these precautions, says Emily Oster, were totally misguided. But the thing is, we didn't know. I can't say the word that uh, Bionic Mosquito uses next, but let's just say it uh, rhymes with bull. Mm. We did know. Those telling you to mask and social distance knew they were lying. Countless pre-stupidity peer-reviewed studies were clear, masking by amateurs with pretend masks, let alone homemade masks, were useless and even harmful when it came to dealing with airborne viruses. We knew that anyone younger than 70 years old with no comorbidities was at virtually zero risk of zero zero risk rather of serious complications. We knew that continuing in school was the best option for young people. We knew that the virus, such as it was, traveled equally well both in strip clubs and churches, but only one of these was closed. We knew when politicians and leaders went to restaurants or hair salons without masking, while we were all forced into a face diaper, that it was a lie. We knew that these modern jabs were based on science that failed every test before. We knew that forcing the decision of jab or job on individuals was both immoral and corrupt. We knew, and so did those who said otherwise. Now again, Emily Oster says, And on every topic, someone was eventually proved right, and someone else was proved wrong. Well, Bionic Mosquito says, Yes, and on every topic, the people most listened to were always wrong. And those who were canceled were almost always right. This latter group wasn't just made up of loons like me. Hundreds of prominent and world-renowned doctors and scientists were canceled because they didn't agree with MSNBC, CNN, or the science. Go back and reread the Great Barrington Declaration, as mild as it is, written in October 2020 and signed initially by almost 50 doctors and scientists and currently by nearly one million individuals. They knew. But Collins and Fauci and others worked to crush this attempt at minimal rational pushback. Now, again, Emily Oster says, the people who got it right, for whatever reason, may want to gloat. Those who got it wrong, for whatever reason, may feel defensive and retrench into a position that doesn't accord with the facts. Bionic Mosquito says, nope, I don't want to gloat. That's just not good enough for me. And nope, I won't merely allow the criminals to retrench. That isn't justice. He says, I want to tie a stone around the belly of every last one of them all those in politics and media and big business and big tech and big education who shoved two years of hell down our throats, throw them in a lake and see if they drown. Emily Oster says, we have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. Yes, the bionic mosquito response, the desire of every miscreant in history. And listen to this line. She said, we can leave out the willful purveyors of actual misinformation. Bionic Mosquito says, yeah, I agree fully. No amnesty for the willful willful purveyors in politics and media and big business and big tech and big education who knew they were lying. Emily says, moving on is crucial now because the pandemic created many problems that we still need to solve. Bionic Mosquito says, no, the pandemic didn't create these problems. These problems were created by the reaction to a barely more harmful than the ordinary flu virus virus by those in politics and media and big business and big tech and big education. And all these problems were predicted at the time by many, but ignored by those in politics and media and big business and big tech and big education. So the conclusion... Well, Emily says, let's acknowledge that we made complicated choices in the face of deep uncertainty. Bionic Mosquito says, no, let's strap a boulder onto those purveyors of lies in politics and media and big business and big tech and big education before being sent into the water. Only if they drown, demonstrating their innocence, will I believe they were victims of complicated choices made in the face of deep uncertainty. But if they float, thus demonstrating their guilt, well then... How about life in prison with the following prison rules? Permanent mask wearing, social distancing, no access to medical or dental care, jabs every six months, like they offered us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.